and you could read it along there with me. But in Mark chapter 11, it's one of the pinnacles of Jesus' ministry, we find Jesus. He's heralded by these crowds as a conquering king, and he's entering into Jerusalem. It's regularly, we know this as the triumphal entry, it's called, within the Christian church. But it's an interesting triumphal entry for only five days after this. These same crowds, the herald as king, will be shouting and calling him a criminal, leading him to a cross. Though Jesus was the rightful king of the hill, people quit, uh, switch so quickly in their allegiances. Why? Again, I ask, do you ever find yourself here? Find yourself, even your relationship with Christ, here in this similar place. I hope you're not actually calling for Jesus' death all over again. Imagine you wouldn't say you are, and yet within our hearts we can find ourselves so disappointed, so uncertain, so lacking in a sense of confidence in our own lives, let alone in our world, that we begin to grow angry and upset, and we begin to want to push Christ out from his position of rightful leadership. If we're going to walk with Jesus, though, walk through even failed expectations, walk through uncertainty, walk through the ups and downs, we have to understand what it is that Christ, what kind of king Jesus actually is, what it is that Christ's kingship will look like in your life, in my life, and in our world. And that's really what our passage is going to teach us today. In essence, we need to know what kind of king Christ is, what kind of king Jesus will be for you. So let's read in Mark chapter 11 and... I just want you to, even as I'm reading, don't just listen to what it is that I might be going to say or anticipate, but listen to what one of Jesus' biographers, Mark, and what the Holy Spirit through Mark is trying to tell you about Jesus and his kingship. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied in which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Now, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And so they went away and they found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus' biographer here, Mark, he makes a subtle but very clear point for why Jesus came to Jerusalem. And in so doing, he explains to us Jesus' ultimate purpose, both in the world and in our lives. Mark is very clear, and I'll unpack this for you, that Jesus came to Jerusalem to demonstrate himself as king. This isn't just some notion that Christians have come up with. This actually was Jesus' intention. 
You see, in the Old Testament, there's these prophecies, these announcements hundreds of years before Christ ever walked in the earth. One of them foretold about this coming king of Israel this way. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, laud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. This is interesting, but if you look back into the book of 1 Kings, it's one of the books, early part telling the history of Israel. And in 1 Kings, there was, you had David, who was kind of the uh, promised and ultimate, this, this kind of idyllic king over Israel. And after him came his son, Solomon. And so in 1 Kings, we're told about Solomon and how Solomon himself was heralded as king over Israel. He was one of, uh, what's interesting is Solomon wasn't the next appropriate one in line. He was a younger son. He had older brothers who really should have been by, you know, heritage who was uh, taking over as king. But Solomon was heralded as the king. Why? And what did it look like for him to be heralded as king? Well, his advisors took him and they put him on a donkey, the colt of a donkey, and then paraded him through the city, announcing him as king over Israel. Even the geographic reference, notice there in uh, the beginning of uh, chapter 11, they, went, they drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. This very notion, this, this geographic reference, Mount of Olives, you probably, I, I would have read over it, not knowing any of the common, uh, maybe, expectations that were there in people's hearts. But there also is a prophecy, prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus ever came, and it talked about this, and it talked about this reference, this geographic reference to the Mount of Olives. There's this prophecy about a fateful day. It's called the day of the Lord, a day of great judgment upon all the earth. And on that day, this prophet says that the judge of all the earth will stand on the Mount of Olives, and then the Lord will be king over all the earth. Okay, do you see all of these Mark is, when he is understanding, and then the Spirit of God speaking to us through this biographer is understanding what happened in this moment, in the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem, he has all of these references in mind. And so here in Mark, we find Jesus leaving the Mount of Olives, riding on a donkey, the colt of a donkey, being heralded as the king of Israel, and not just the king of Israel, but according to this, the last one about the Mount of Olives, he is the king over all of the earth. This concept of kingship, I mean, think about it. It is difficult for us as Americans to comprehend. It's difficult for us in modern, um, modern world to comprehend. I don't care where you are, America or some other part. We've known so little of what it means truly to be ruled. And those of us who have any taste of what it is to be ruled, for most of, most of us, all our experience has been, it's been destructive and, and, and enslaving. We don't know what it actually would be like to have a king that is actually for our good, for the good of the land. We know these seemingly silly antics of these dynastic monarchies that are around the world, but we don't put much stock in them. And so for us who live in this democratic state of citizen rulers, where in essence the only king is ourselves, we get to vote who it is that's going to rule over us. That in itself, it shapes our worldview. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but the very fabric of our American existence hinders our ability to really understand what it's like and what it means for Jesus to be king. And yet, here Jesus enters into Jerusalem to demonstrate he is king. 
king of Jerusalem, king of Israel, king of the world, king of you and me. And this was his ultimate goal of his mission, to show forth and reclaim his total dominion over all the earth. And this includes you and me. Now, how might this alter your expectations of what Jesus is actually doing in your life, of what he's actually doing in the world? I have to admit, I find myself certain days as I read the news, or as I start to journal, as I start to have conversations with my wife, I start to think, not really sure if Jesus is doing a very good job. I don't know if you've ever had that in your heart. I do. Confess that to you, that there's times that if he really is king, what's going on around me? And yet, this passage clearly asserts that Jesus, the risen Lord, is king over all of our world. For you, is that simply a constitutional monarchy? Do you know what that is? It means the parliament has all the power and the monarch just plant, places their seal at the end of all the decisions being made. Maybe that's what Jesus is like for you. He's kind of your constitutional monarch. You got his name on your letterhead. But ultimately, you're the one who truly signs all the papers and puts everything actually into practice, in, in, into direction. Actually, you're the one who really is in charge. It's an important first place for us to consider and evaluate in our own life as we look at this text. But I think, if you're like me, and I can imagine, if you think about somebody lording over you, it begins to feel, you, get, you start pushing away. You don't want that. And so, lest you think that this mission of dominion, this mission of ruling of Christ tastes bitter to you, I want you to notice what Jesus intends to do with his power, what he intends to do with his rule in your life and in the world. Do you hear what the crowds are shouting? Look there towards the end. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! We sing songs that say this. I could have had a, a show to YouTube. My daughter just uh, literally yesterday, she's running around my kitchen. Just, she's saying hallelujah, which is a similar phrase as Hosanna, just over and over and over. I don't know why. It's just, we sing it. She doesn't exactly know what it means, but we sing it enough that it's stuck in her head. And we might sing this, and maybe that's what's going on here. They're just kind of singing this religious phrase. But I don't think so. In the original language, Hosanna means save now. So in the context of the Old Testament, it's Psalm 118. I want to read it for you just because it's so critical to the passage and will help you understand what, why these pilgrims who are there on the road as Jesus is coming down, riding on a donkey, announcing himself as king, why they are there going, save us now, save now. This, this chant that they're saying, it comes directly out of Psalm 118. It's not just, they didn't just say it, just come up with it on their own. They actually are quoting the Old Testament. Let me read for you some of the sections of Psalm 118. It's where I started actually in our prayer. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That's where it begins. And then verse 17, I shall not die, but I shall live. And I will recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely but he has not given me over to death. So this is context of what they're, they're seeing themselves as this people that has been disciplined, 
severely disciplined and yet hopeful that despite their sin, despite their failure, there still will be a king who will come to them. There still will be a God who will rescue them. And so they keep going. This verse 18, uh, 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter, enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Have you ever heard that passage before? One of the later New Testament writers will claim this. The apostles themselves claim this very idea. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They saw that as emblematic of everything about Jesus. Though rejected, he has become the cornerstone of life. So here are these pilgrims on the road, Jesus coming in, they're shouting this. This passage is what's in their mind. And then verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. That word is Hosanna. Hosanna, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So 118.25, that's what these people on the road are shouting as Jesus walks in. Save us now. Hosanna, save us now. Though a sinful, judged, convicted people, they cry out to this king, will you please save us? Rescue or rescue us, king, save us. If you think about it, the kingship of anyone... It's not good news to you. That is not good news if that king is coming to destroy you. If that king is coming to rule in a way for his own purposes that's going to suppress you and your actual wishes and desires and needs. But what about a king like this? The arrival of the king is best news. It's the best news possible if his power and governance is the only hope you have of salvation. And this is the expectation we must have of Jesus. That he comes as a king to sinners, king to those who have been convicted of their rebellion. He comes, though, to them to offer his salvation. Have you cried out, Hosanna? Not just one time. I hope you have. I hope in this room, all of you have come to that point that you've recognized. I need a savior. I must have a king. I cannot be king of my own hill. I need a savior to rescue me from my sin. But this also is a cry that goes on and on throughout our life. Day after day, one quick testimony just from, so as I said, I'm involved in trying to see a new church get started in Connecticut. And I was talking with this man. Actually, he married a friend of mine. And uh, my understanding was that uh, this friend of mine had grown up in church and I'd understood her to be a follower of Jesus. And uh, so I was talking to this now, her husband, and I just assumed, I hadn't seen him in probably 10 years, and I just asked a simple question, you know, over the course of the conversation, where, where are you going to church? And he said, oh, actually, I'm, I'm, we don't go to church. I said, oh, okay. I was just a little taken back just from my, what I was expecting from them. And um, I said, oh, okay, well, why not? And he said, well, you know, I just I don't really see a big need in my life for it. It doesn't really seem to have much relevance to me or my family life. I said, Wow. And I, I wasn't being like facetious or I wasn't, this wasn't a line. I legitimately meant it. I said, you must really be better than me. I got paused and it's like, no, I'm serious. I cannot go through a single day 
without needing a savior. I mean it. If I just go, my, my, every single day I find myself crying out. This morning, driving here to church, crying out in the car, Hosanna, Jesus, can you save me again for myself? Whether it's in the leadership of my children or my failures in my, in my, my, my parenting or my relationship with my wife, on through the way I drive to, I, you, you can think, I hope in your own life, you can recognize, I need a savior. And so we, I basically said that to him. I was like, so I just, it has to be that you are a better person than me and that you don't need a king to rule you in the way that I do. He kind of was a little bit taken aback, (laughs) didn't know what to make of that. And, and I said, you know what? The thing that's amazing is I know I need a savior just based on my own standards. Meaning just based on the standards I fail for myself, the standards I've set of what kind of husband I'm supposed to be. What happens when we actually look to the standards of God and understand what the requirements are of a holy, righteous God and how we don't live up to them? How, how much more aware do we become of how great the need is for someone to come and save us? That is what Jesus has come. This is the kind of king who is here for you. You may not understand how he's moving in the world or how he's moving in your life, But I hope you can see within your heart that distance between who you are and who you are made to be, between how you're supposed to live and how you actually do live, between who God is and who you are, and you recognize there's only one who can stand in that gap. I need a savior. And I hope as you begin to imagine that this is the kind of king he is. We're going to get into this, but the reality is Jesus, he didn't just come for the crown. He knew full well what, he was gonna, what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He came, not just for the crown, but also for the cross. The cross for these very people and the cross that you yourself and I deserve. And this is the kind of king that offers himself to you this day and day in and day out for the rest of your life as you commit yourself to him. And that leads to the one final problem that our text reveals. The problem of why we struggle so often to align ourselves with this king. It's why even these very cheering crowds fail to line themselves up with this savior king. You know the end of the story. I already alluded to this, but the cheers of the crowds are haunted by the sounds of the hammer blows at the cross. If you're reading this for the first time, reading what Mark has to say about Jesus, and you know at least enough about, about this, this man, probably would know that he died. And so you have this triumphal entry, and yet you're thinking, everybody's cheering, celebrating his kingship, calling for him to save them, and yet, just a few days later, these very same people are going to be a part of sending him to a cross. Why? And it's sad, but the answer is very simple. Jesus didn't live up to their expectations. They liked his dominion when it seemed to give them what they wanted, but they rejected it when it threatened their way of life and didn't satisfy their particular desires. So we, you see, we know from other Jewish writings that the Jewish people had this expectation of what this king was going to be like. And primarily what this king was going to do is he was going to come in and rescue them from all those other powers that held them down, and he was going to lift them up and put them on top. He was going to make them king of the hill. 
That was the popular notion of a Messiah. He would be this conquering ruler, a warrior king, just like David. He'd throw down all the enemies of Israel, and he'd put the Jewish people back in power. But that wasn't Jesus' mission. You see, he didn't just come to dominate the world. He came to die for her. He didn't just come to dominate Rome. He actually came to die for those very soldiers who would put him on the cross. If you thought about this, as I alluded to what Hosanna means, save now, and I, I think there's two ways to say that. You could say save now, which is just this desperate, I just need a savior, save now. Or you could say save now. Jesus, you come on my terms. You're my little genie in a bottle. And when I need you for my particular ways and my particular purposes, that's when I call upon you. You see, but Jesus didn't come just to remove us, remove them from our trials, to lift us or them from their sufferings. He came to take away our sins. Yet this isn't our normal expectation for our kings. I confess within myself, I hope you can see it within yourself. We, often, we don't want a king who humbly dies. We don't want a king who then calls us to take a similar path the path of the cross. But that's who Jesus was. He came on a cult. That's the paradox. You're supposed to see the risen, think about this, the cosmic king of the universe is entering into the world. Does he ride on the cult of a donkey? He should be riding on a white steed, the most, tri- the most glorious horse you've ever seen with a parade of angels thousands deep. All power being directed and oriented towards him and yet he comes with just strangers and pilgrims, a few of them. This isn't probably a large number. We kind of imagine this triumphal entry that there's like thousands of people. Probably not. If there was thousands, the Romans would have shut it down. Maybe there's 50, 100, maybe. The glorious, all-majestic king of all the world coming into the world and he rides on a donkey. Jesus came for the cross as well as the crown. And that changes all of our expectations of what he's going to do in our world and what he's going to do in our life. You see, our king doesn't always meet our expectations. He doesn't always deliver us in the time or the way that we want him to, but he is always coming to rule us into that which is absolutely best for each of us and for our world. I... I don't share this message, I didn't choose this text just out of uh, some kind of deep well out there years ago that I was learning this. This has been so central to my life. In many respects, what drew me to this passage as I've been studying it over the last several months and this triumphal entry of Christ is that's what I believe fundamentally a church is supposed to be an expression of. That's what starting a new church is. In essence, it's the triumphal entry of Christ. It's Jesus coming back into a town saying, I'm king. And I'm setting up shop. I've got an address now. All of you can come and experience my leadership and my, my, uh, my saving power in your life. And this king comes in and he asserts himself. And as a church planner, starting new churches, that sounds great. Especially if you're thinking it's going to be this triumphant, big, glorious, you know, white steed. Everybody's going to know Jesus is king. The whole town is going to come. 
I imagine you all, from your own experience, it's not exactly how it usually works. Imagine you don't have your neighbors just pounding down your doors day after day saying, do you know a savior who can rescue me? (laughs) What is it about how Jesus comes, how he intends to offer himself in this humble, sacrificial, sometimes very quiet manner of saving I believe it's essential that churches like you all, churches like ours in Fairfield County, are started and exist and continue to proclaim forth to the world that there is a king here who can, who's ready to save. It's essential. You know some of these statistics. I shared some last time. I continue just to try to educate the church in this area. Uh, they estimate that throughout in Connecticut, it's about uh, 4% of Connecticut would uh, identify themselves as having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. About 4%. There's others. I know there's going to be other Christians and other churches that wouldn't necessarily use that language. But probably we can say that about 90% of New England, and I've put this Long Island part probably in a similar type of cultural milieu as what's in New England, about 90% of New England probably does not, have a per- does not know God, does not know this Savior King, is living to keep themselves on as the king of the hill, instead of allowing and yielding themselves to Jesus. One just stat that kind of helps get you a sense of what actually, how desperate the need is in this part of the world. I lived in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina for 15 years. My town, uh, just where I lived, within probably about five miles, I could probably find 20 to 25 really, really good, really healthy, really Christ-honoring, really biblical churches, 25 within five miles. Statistically, what that looks like is uh, on average about um, the, the number of churches kind of per person, basically, kind of church per capita is one of the ways that uh, theologians and, and thinkers about kind of church, starting churches consider things. Um, four, so you got, like I said, five churches or 25 churches within five miles, kind of that type of percentage and those statistics for New England or let's say Long Island to match what that percentage looks like. So the number of churches that there are per person in North Carolina for that to match, for New England to match that, we need to start 10,000 more churches. That's just to match the existing number of healthy, biblical, Christ-loving churches that are in just the state of North Carolina. And the state of North Carolina needs more churches. There's still thousands and thousands of people that live there, and many of our friends are moving there (laughs) uh, from up here. And and yet 10,000 churches, 10,000 more churches needed just to match the existing state of what's going on in other parts of our country. And so I came to Connecticut because my king called me here. That's why I came, believed that Jesus and his desire to demonstrate his saving leadership to the world invited me and my family and a few small people to come. But I tell you what, not only here, I realize that so often my expectations are not Jesus' expectations. I want him to come in some particular way that meet on my terms, in my particular uh, vision of what he's going to do, and he's got something very different. And so he calls us, he calls me, to come like him, humbly, submitting myself to him, and then offering myself to all those that I come in contact with. That's why he says, if any man wants to follow me, if any woman wants to follow me, They must take up their cross daily. 
You see that? The same kind of life, the same kind of upside down kind of living, not striving to be king of the hill, but actually submitting and surrendering yourself, not only to Jesus, but then offering yourself to others. But I have to say, y'all, dying hurts, right? Jesus is calling us to come and die for our neighbors, die for our spouse, die for our children, submit ourselves, our wills over to his, and then be an expression of his saving love for all those we come in contact with. That's a very, very different kind of life. And yet Jesus says, for he who loses his life for my sake will save it. This upside down life is the only actual way to experience the fullness of this saving work of Jesus. What does this have to do with you all? It's not just the starting of new churches. What does it have to do with each of you as a church member, this church as a whole? Well, you just have to ask this question. How will this town, how will your family members, how will your neighbors, how will the world discover that Jesus is king today? And the incredible truth of all throughout the scriptures is that they will see him as king through each of us. As they see a people who is joyfully ruled by the Savior King, a people who gladly die for him and for others on a daily basis, they will see both the crown of Christ and the cross of Christ lived out in each of us as a surrendered, submitted people to him. They will experience that very salvation that we are experiencing in Jesus as we tell them about this Savior, invite them in to this same leadership of his, uh, his same leadership in our life. Obviously, this is no small business. This is no small little endeavor. The amazing reality is that here, in the East End, Jesus has come. He comes here every single Sunday. He comes here day after day as you all are gathering in his name, as you're going out into the world. He comes and he declares that he is king. That he's here to save, that he's mighty, that he's righteous, that he's judged, that he's ruler over all the earth, and he will offer to them salvation. And he hasn't come just for the crown, but he's come for their cross as well. That is the power, the beauty, the significance of living on mission with Jesus. That's what it is to be a part of a church. That's what it is to be a part of church revitalization, church starting new churches. That's what it is to be united to the Savior. Will you let him lead you again today? Wherever that expectation is that he hasn't met, whatever that place in your life that you're still holding on to, that you are disappointed or angry or frustrated, that thing that you think, if I can hold on by my own power, I'll stay on top of the hill, will you surrender again yourself? We sang about it, we heard about it in the scriptures. Will you let him lead you today? As you do, you will find that he will come and live through you as well. Would you pray with me? Jesus, this is a profound reality, an upside-down kind of living, a losing of power that we might actually find your power, a surrender of self that we might actually live, and a mission to rescue the world, to save them all. That is what you came for. 
to call your own to yourself, to joyfully submit themselves to you. And so we ask once again, even now as we approach this table, that you would prepare our hearts. And you'd save us again. For some, maybe for the first time. You'd save us again. And for others, you'd save us from ourselves once again. Save us from our sins, the continued patterns with which we live. We turn once again from them and we, and we acknowledge and receive you as our Lord and Savior all over again. We pray this because that is what you are, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.